Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troop, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co-host Polly Young-Eisendratt. She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast. So in this podcast today, Polly and I are going to be talking about belonging without othering. What allows us to feel comfortable in ourselves and with others? What does it mean to feel like we belong? That's a big one. Can we do this without creating an other and without setting up an enemy, even though we may feel envious or jealous or ashamed or self-conscious about our situation or status? Can we move through our outrage or rage without creating more humiliation and rage? Okay, Polly. So, Eleanor, I wanted to start by saying to our listeners that we've been away from the podcast for a while, but it's not as though we haven't been thinking about it, because what has happened is we had some technical problems, we had to solve those, and now we believe that we've solved them, and so we're back. And we'll be back now with several programs coming up very soon. Today, we're beginning with belonging and belonging without othering. So before I actually start into that conversation with you, I would like to mention that I owe John A. Powell a big thank you for his thinking, for his conferences, and also the terms belonging and othering. He leads the UC Berkeley Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society, and he holds the Chancellor's Chair in Equity and Inclusion. He's a professor of law and a professor of African American Studies and Ethnic Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. So just wanting to acknowledge that I have taken the terms belonging and othering from John Powell and that I very much respect his work. As a way of getting started, because you mentioned, Eleanor, the self-conscious emotions allowed us to revisit our last program where we were talking especially about the self-conscious emotions which come on board at about 18 to 24 months for human beings. And these emotions motivate us to create the sense of a self that is in here with the world and others being out there. And they also contribute to our ability to do what we're calling decenter, that is to think about our own thoughts and feelings and to move back from our immediate experience to check whether we want to say and do what we're about to say and do or 
to check on what we've just done and to see if it actually has created the consequences that we intended. The self-conscious emotions set into motion this creation of a human self and its experience in being inside a body and then our experience with being with others in the way we compare ourselves to others, protect ourselves from others, and want to have prominence and security, safety, with a group situation. So we've been covering the human emotions as motivational systems, and we've been emphasizing that the human self is an interactional process. It is not inside of the body, it is not the body itself, nor is it outside of the body in the group situation, whether it's a tribe or an identity group or whatever. The human self is always interactional because you're always creating self and other. You're always selfing and othering when you are interacting with others and experiencing yourself a certain way and others in some other way. So that's kind of review for what we've been covering in earlier programs. And today we're going to talk specifically about whether it is necessary to create that sense of an other or an enemy in order to get the feeling of belonging, that we belong here on earth, that we belong to a family, we belong to a tribe, or we belong to a group. Do we need to create a strong sense of otherness in order to inhabit an identity or to feel comfortable like we belong. So I'm going to ask you first, Eleanor, what you think belonging is. Like, you know, how do you experience a sense of belonging? What's what's involved? I'm just trying to feel into this. It's um, not an easy answer here. I think for me, belonging is about my ability to stay open in the face of vulnerability, allowing me to stay grounded in the face of difference or to be able to, the kind of word that comes to me is how do I hold like neutral ground in the face of something that is, you know, triggering me, causing me to feel defensive or throwing me off center. How do I learn how to not go immediately into you know, impulsive action or reactivity? How do I just stand my ground and stay open? That to me, in, in, in a very deep sense, is what it means to belong. That's just what comes to me in this moment as I um, think about it. Thanks. That really, I think, is very comprehensive of what people do experience when they have the sense of belonging. Often when you talk to somebody about whether they feel they belong, they will say that they can feel that sense of belonging in certain situations, in certain groups, or in certain environments. And uh, when they feel it, they feel comfortable, at ease. They feel open, as you expressed there. And I like the idea of open with your vulnerability. It's not that you feel you're protecting yourself so much. When you feel you belong, you feel at ease, and there's a way in which you're more open-minded or open-hearted than you are if you don't feel you belong. The belonging sense also relates to this idea of trust that we talked about in an earlier program, which is like, what is trust anyway? 
Well, it's somehow this sense that you can stand strongly in a spot and that you're going to be fine, that you're going to go on and it's going to work out. The problem for us in this period of time, especially, but I think always for humans, is that often when we have that comfort, when we have that ease, it's based on being with others that are the same in the way that we feel they're the same as us. And that that sameness is drawn as a distinction with others that we take to be not the same as us. This is a kind of fundamental division that is, I think, built into our development as human beings, that we come into that early period of time where the self-conscious emotions develop, we feel embodied in a body that's different from what's around us, then we begin to identify with a family or a group, and then we're told and we continue to identify with stories and so on about who our group is, how it came about, and what the conditions were, and how it's different from others, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that sense of being different, different from somebody else, seems to be a fundamental human dilemma that we, as an organism, as a species, we organize ourselves in such a way as to feel like we're different from others who are in the same species. I want to quote a little bit of a song from my sort of mentor and what I would consider to be, in a way, my, a master teacher for me, and that is Leonard Cohen, who is the Canadian singer-songwriter who died in 2016. This song is called Different Sides. Here are some lines from it. We find ourselves on different sides of a line nobody drew. Though it all may be one in the higher eye, down here where we live, it is two. So I'm going to say those lines again because I think it's a major teaching about the issue of belonging and othering. We find ourselves on different sides we could even say we find ourselves on different sides of a line nobody drew, though it all may be one in the higher eye. Down here where we live, it is two. So he is in these lines referencing this teaching, this idea that we're born into a situation where there are these divides. There is this sense of opposites, like good and bad, right and wrong, life and death. We've talked about some of these already. And then we find ourselves on some side of this kind of environment or encounter or whatever, so that we end up feeling like, how did I get here? So if I am identifying with being a woman, and I identify with some kind of skin color, or I identify with a region of the country where I grew up, then I may find myself on the other side of a line that I never drew. And even though I might aspire to unity, uh, as most of our spiritual masters 
and all of the religions help us aspire to the higher I, and in this case it's the E-Y-E-I, not the letter I, but the higher I, which is one. Even though we aspire to that unity, we find ourselves on different sides. And what do we do with that? And does it come about specifically from this sense that we belong on a particular side? So this is the conversation we're going to have uh, right now. And I, I wonder if there's anything that you want to bring up at this point, Eleanor, um, before we move you know, further into the specifics of what it means to uh, feel like you belong to a particular group or identity. To answer your question, Polly, I, I'm thinking right now about, you know, differences, identity, self-consciousness, and I'm finding myself uh, kind of reflecting back on some of our earlier dialogues and some of our earlier podcasts and where we talked about needing all sides. And again, to just remember that reality is between us and not simply within us. And as we develop the awareness that real solutions and real discoveries can be found between people, not just within individuals. So that's, that's a really good point to bring that back and bring it into the foreground right now, because in this podcast, we're talking about the possibility of finding a way to feel at ease and confident in your own identity and also be able to interact with those who have big differences or seem to have big differences with you. And you kind of bring us back to the necessity of doing that because reality does not lie within us, but between us or in the interaction. And then you bring us back also to the idea once more that the self is interactional, that what we call self is an interactional process in which we are creating a sense of others and we're also evoking emotionally responses from others. And so we need to be very mindful and careful about the way we do this thing of selfing and othering. And in fact, as I said earlier, all of the great religions really do instruct us in one way or another to pay attention to the unity that underlies these differences. The way that the Buddha taught this principle is in many ways unique because it has a very psychological component to it. So in the great awakening of Shakyamuni Buddha, what he saw was that the self never arises independently. It's always in a context, and the context involves others. And so the self arises in relation to other. This principle is called dependent arising, and there are a lot of ways to think about it, but one way to think about it is to say, if I perceive myself like this, then I will perceive you like that. If I formulate my identity like this, then I will perceive your identity like that. So that the Buddha's teaching on what's called dependent arising, or let's say the insight into the deep and radical interdependence of human beings, of uh, the self that we create, uh, that teaching actually wakens us very directly 
to the issues that come about when we take on or perceive ourselves as having a particular identity, including and very specifically including identifying with the body that we're in, where we say, this is who I am. I am a woman of this age in this body, and that's who I am. So your sort of response there kind of brings us back to the teaching that self and other arise together and that this was uh, and remains one of the greatest teachings by any spiritual master. So continuing to talk about sameness and belonging and, you know, asking, you know, why is it that people feel so different? And when they find their own belonging, when they're among those who are familiar to them or they're with their own tribe or they see themselves reflected back in the other's eye. But when you're with someone who's different from you, how that alienation gets set up. Let's just continue talking about sameness and belonging because it's just revealing so many interesting aspects of our own consciousness. To me, it's part of the design feature of being a human that because our early development, we move from this sort of fundamental unity of our experience into the self-conscious emotions, the birth of these emotions, which actually allow us to compare and contrast ourselves to others in the group and to identify with those that we depend on and then eventually to develop a story about who we are and uh, where we came from. And that story usually has, you know, identification features and it usually has a kind of tribal sort of idea in it, like, these are my people. I come from these people and not from those people. And as we go on developing, so let's say we begin to really understand uh, what it means to have a particular identity as an individual between the ages of about five and seven, actually around four years old, it starts. And then by the time you're about seven, you have this sense like, I'm in here, I know who I am, I'm a girl, I like ice cream, I don't like doing this, I go to these places. Or you have that sense of, I'm supposed to be a girl, but I feel uncomfortable with being a girl. All of those things can actually start to gel in terms of your cognitive capacities uh, by the time you're about six or seven. Then we start identifying with a group that seems like the group that's like us. Or if we don't identify with any group, usually then we're identified with the group that is not having any group. You know, the sort of sense of I'm this hyper super individual and I'm only interested in what I'm interested in. That's uh, what you might call being on the spectrum. Uh, they're kind of Asperger-ish autistic thing, which now has a group. Now there are people that identify with being that, you know, even though it's, it's a non-group identity, but it's a group of non-group identity. Because human beings actually are very social, and so they like to have an identity group, and usually it is your family, and often it is your religion as well, or your non-religion if you're an atheist. So by the time you get to be, say, 14 years old, you generally have already developed some theories that are in your sense of identity. These are the kinds of people we are, uh, these are the things we believe in, and here's why, and so on and so forth. Then <laughs> there's still further solidification of that, which comes at around 21 to 25 years old. At that point, you have responsibility 
for your identity. And so you have ways of defending it, narrating it, trying to refine it, and so on. Because still, it's a relatively new operation, let's say, as compared to when you're 50 or when you're 70, when you've already kind of hammered out all of these issues, uh, or at least you believe you've hammered them out. So there's a tendency, particularly in cultures like North American cultures, to believe in this individual identity and to think that identity is very important. So is when you have defined yourself by your group, by the way your body is, your skin color, your hair texture, the color of your eyes, you then probably only really feel truly comfortable with people that reflect that easily. And it may be hard even to recognize that how you get to that comfort because it seems so natural and because as a society we tend to reinforce the at this point for some reason we're really reinforcing a sense of identity based on appearance based on what colors your skin what also do you look like on so many different levels everything from your your body size to you know how you dress to what kind of accoutrements you put on your body. And I'm including everything from transgendered to race, what we call race, to what we call body weight. I mean, all these different things right now seem to be extremely important in the way people are narrating themselves. And so there are so many possible groups. And then you add ideals to that, you add political beliefs, you add philosophies and spiritualities, and, you know, there are so many possibilities for the issue of sameness and difference. I want to just kind of focus on this one, one thing that is possible that leads to a skill. If, as a full-fledged adult, you decide to identify with being human instead of one of these other groups, if you identify with the larger species group and you recognize that it is at risk on this planet because of the natural violence in this species, because of the negativity in the species, but you really identify with wanting the species to go on here, it is possible to transcend the other categories and to begin to act as though you are human. And instead of acting as though you have a particular identity group, that is possible. And we'll be talking about how to bring that possibility more and more forward in your own life. But I want to introduce it here as a different kind of sameness is to identify with your species, even though it is a troubling species. So that just reawakens uh, uh, for all our listeners our common humanity. I've begun to think about the, um, the nuance between a homo sapien, we're homo sapiens, but we're not all human beings. I mean, how, we, how life affords us the opportunity to become a full human being or allows us the opportunity to fully participate with common humanity. And having that vision, having that aspiration, having that awakening in our, even if you think of it just as imagination, does open a lot more channels in the face of all of this other very, very limiting consciousness that we're being 
you know, bombarded with daily through our media and through what's going on in, in, in culture, what's going on all over the world. I had a, a phone call today with a dear friend in Paris who actually used the phrase humiliation and rage that's happening in the city, and it's just deeply, deeply upsetting and very frightening. And um, wow, yeah, this is, this is powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. Thank you, Polly, for really bringing this kind of education to us. So thanks, Eleanor, for bringing up what's happening in Paris right now, because at this moment, there are these riots going on in Paris, which are based on some kinds of differences, maybe differences about how to respond to what we call climate change or what we call threat on this planet in regard to the climate, whether there should be some sort of tax on carbon fuels, et cetera, et cetera. These kinds of issues, if they revert to humiliation and rage, can never, ever have any lasting solutions. They will just be problems that are always infused with the sense of not being able to communicate with the other side. I want to come back to, even at this moment, what you were saying about homo sapiens and humans. Because it's true that our species is homo sapien, and if we understand how that species is both similar to and different from other animals, we can begin to appreciate the form that we're in and what it allows us to do and what it doesn't allow us to do. And I think as we appreciate that, we might also appreciate that this idea of saving our planet is a little bit like not accurate. What we're trying to do is to save conditions in which human beings or homo sapiens could continue here on the planet. We're not in control of this planet. We're living here. And we, when we say saving the planet, we mean saving the conditions in which we live on the planet. And so at root, it means recognizing <laughs> that you are a particular species here. And that species actually might be part of what you're responsible for so that you're not just responsible for your identity and the, the humans that look like you or sound like you or believe like you. If you actually care about your own species, you can begin to address the differences in the different views so that maybe we could come to some solutions that would allow um, human beings and, you know, our neighbors, the homo sapiens, <laughs> the human beings really should be actually operating on a level that includes the ability to be responsible for what you do and say. That is part of what it means to be human. But let's say that our species actually can solve the issues that our species has created for ourselves on this planet if we can find a way to actually communicate with each other through our differences, and if we can feel that we belong to the species rather than specific groups within the species. So that's kind of the big sort of sameness category that we share is this human category, and yet we seem not to notice that. We seem to make all of these kinds of statements about saving the planet and fighting with each other over that constantly, when in fact what we're really doing is we're trying to save the species. And if we want to do that, we do have to identify with that common humanity, that, that sameness. I just want to um, want to read a, a little quote from Leonard from that same song, 
different sides. I'll re renew or review the uh, lines that I spoke earlier. He says, we find ourselves on different sides of a line nobody drew. Though it all may be one in the higher eye, down here where we live, it is two. And then he says further, I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. And I like those second that second set of lines because I believe there is a treaty that we can sign so that we can actually make a bridge between your love and mine. So, you know, the people, for example, who elected Donald Trump, they did that because they believed this is a good way to make things better. That was their love. It's not my love, but I believe that they wanted the best, and I don't reduce them or try to see them in some light that is not like me. I just had a different opinion. I don't know if my opinion was correct. I never really know whether I have a correct opinion on anything having to do with politics because it escapes me how all of that works, really. I never really see how politics have led to anything like, uh, how do I want to say it, a greater unity for human beings. It seems like it leads to greater divisiveness. But anyway, I actually really respect people who have different views from mine. And I'm interested in finding out why they think the way they do in, in the framework of, well, what do you mean by that? Rather than, well, what do you mean by that? So, you know, this is the opening that I think is possible right now at this moment, because we are in such a crisis that perhaps we could waken to the necessity of being human, identifying with our species, and then trying to work it out for our species. Thank you, Polly. That was really, really clear. I, I just keep imagining how we can all come together from this sense of a common humanity and understand we all have our a part to play and, and learning about how we can best hold difference when we're, we're, we're with the other. Um, and just, again, stay open. I mean, in, in many ways, that is also an extraordinary uh, sense of belonging, you know, to just have that respect of another who's different from us and also be well aware that we all are accountable for our own actions and there are consequences. And if we can learn to participate in this way, it just feels like there's so many ways that we can solve these enormous problems. But without that sense, it just feels impossible. Thank you so much, Polly. That was really, really rich. And just uh, just kind of my heart is wide open and I just feel so much possibility and so much more hopeful. And, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.